It's my privilege to open up God's Word to you this morning, and we are going to look at Psalm 90. So read along with me as I read aloud. This is God's Word, and it says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, and the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, and we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days of you as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth now and the meditations of all of our hearts together would be good and pleasing to you, Lord Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, when I was in second grade, I broke my left arm snow sledding on the hills of East Tennessee. And I had to go and get my arm set and put a cast on it, which was painful. But I went in for the routine checkup some weeks later. And the doctor told me that my arm was healing back incorrectly and was going to be deformed. But there was one way for him to to save my arm from being deformed, and that was to re-break my arm right there in his office and reset it and put a new cast on it. It would be painful, but that ultimately my arm would work correctly. And um, all these years later, my arm does work correctly, and I don't think it looks deformed. But it was scary, and it hurt a lot. But, and I'm sure it wasn't easy for that doctor to tell me, uh, as a second grader, hey, buddy, I'm sorry, but we, we really need to re-break your arm. What do you think about that? Uh, totally different context, different example. After apartheid ended in South Africa, there was a committee that was formed. And the, mo- the, the mission of this committee was truth and reconciliation. Truth and reconciliation. And 
It was based around the belief that only transformation, only reconciliation could happen in South Africa after apartheid if both sides were were dedicated to finding the truth out. This committee was based on the belief that reconciliation couldn't happen unless both both sides face the truth. And the passage that we're looking at, it's all about that. How transformation and reconciliation, it can only happen when we can face the hard truth. And really, God's promise is that if we will allow him to wound us, if we'll allow him to wound us, that it will ultimately heal us. And the healing that God wants to give us is eternal joy in his son, Jesus. Only in Jesus that we can have this eternal joy. So first I want to look at the wound and then God healing us. What's the wound? Um, the wound that God wants to, to, to give us, the wound that we've got to allow God to give us if we want to see him work in our hearts and minds, is that he is angry and his wrath is against all humanity. And the proof of that is death. The wound that God wants to give us is that because all people die, it's a picture of what God would give us if we got what we deserved. And you see this especially in verse 7. God says, For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. Then again in verse 9, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. And then again, anger and wrath. It keeps coming up. Verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And Moses, who wrote this psalm, knew all about the wrath of God. Uh, Especially in Numbers 14. Don't turn there, but in Numbers 14, the Old Testament, a book that Moses wrote, Israel had rebelled against God. And because Israel rebelled against God, God brought judgment and death down on Israel. And he promised the Israelites in the wilderness, none of you will see the promised land because of your rebellion. And your death in the wilderness will be proof of my wrath against your sin. And that's why God is angry, because of sin. Um, Look in verse 8. He says, you've set our iniquities. Iniquities is just another word for sin. And he says that you've set our sin before you. He says, our secret sins and the light of your presence. This is what God wants to tell us, that the way that I live, the way that you live, because we live this way, we invite God's anger and his wrath down upon us. Many of us are angry right now because of the injustice that's happening in Birmingham and all over the country. And uh, God knows all about that. There's no one who's more angry about injustice than God is. But this is the bad news. This is the bad news. It's that our hearts are a lot like Birmingham. There's some amazing things in Birmingham. But there's also oppression and violence in Birmingham. And our hearts are just like that. There are amazing things about you and about me because we're made in God's image. 
But there are also dark parts of our hearts that are full of injustice, and no one hates it more than God. And his anger is based off of his love for justice. It's because he loves justice that he hates injustice. And God looks down on humanity, and he's angry because of the injustice that he finds. And uh, this morning, you might be asking the question, Adam, this sounds very Old Testament to me. This angry God who's mad at the world because of injustice sounds super Old Testament. What about the New Testament? The New Testament's more about love and grace, and that's what Jesus talked all about, right? Love and grace. That's partly true, but I want you to think about this. Who talked the most about God's anger and his wrath in the whole Bible? Right? If you found the person in the Bible, the prophet, who talked the most about God's anger, who do you think it would be? If you study this, it's, it's not even close. Like The race is not even close. Jesus Christ talked more about God's wrath and his anger than any other prophet in the Bible. And so if we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to allow him to give us the hard news about ourselves and the hard news about humanity, we've got to take Jesus seriously. He talks about God's wrath more than anyone else. Or think about this. Jesus is sometimes called a lamb, the lamb of God. That's what Jesus is called. He's called that for several reasons. One of the reasons is that he is completely and utterly innocent. No one is more innocent than Jesus. He's like a lamb. God says in his word that at the end, when Jesus comes back, God's wrath will be fully revealed. It'll be opened up for all to see. And what does it call that wrath? God calls it the wrath of the lamb. The innocent lamb is the one that God's wrath is most clearly poured out through. He's the instrument of God's wrath, the lamb, Jesus Christ himself. So this is not just a, a, an, old, an Old Testament thing. Psalm 90, the one that we're looking at this morning, it is often read at funerals. Uh, many of you have heard Psalm 90 in that context if you've been to a, a funeral. Why do we read Psalm 90 at funerals? And there are several reasons, but I think one is this, is that when we are overcome with sadness, I mean, in, in moments in your life where you feel undone, like, uh, I, don't know, I don't know how I'm going to get up tomorrow morning. I'm so overcome with sadness. In those moments, God wants to give us wisdom. And he wants to help us experience pain and sadness wisely. And he says that here. Uh, Moses prays, give us a heart of wisdom. God wants to wound us to make us wise. And God's, God's question is, why is the mortality rate in Jefferson County still 100%? It was 100% 100 years ago. And uh, unless Jesus comes back, the mortality rate in Jefferson County in 100 years, it will still be 100%. I don't want to be more blunt than the Bible. I don't want to be less blunt either. God, the wound that we have to receive from God is that the fact that we are all going to die one day, it is a picture of what we deserve if God gave us what we deserve. 
Because all humanity is sinful, the wages of sin is death. But God is saying, this is wisdom. I, I, I need this to sink into your bones so that I can heal you. So, what's the healing? Um, there, there's a few different ways to respond to a wound. And one is to live in denial of the wound. If you're a Navy SEAL and uh, you're on a special mission and you've been wounded, you have got to live in denial of this wound. And some of us do that. I mean, we all do it sometimes where we've been wounded, but we just want to forget that it's there and we want to have a stiff upper lip and we're just going to keep going. Another way to respond is something like this. Well, if God is mad at me because I've sinned, maybe if I can sin less, then God won't be mad at me anymore. That's another way to respond to finding out that uh, God is full of anger and wrath because of sin. Maybe if I can sin less, God will be less mad at me. And the gospel is something completely different than those. The good news of Jesus is totally different. A lot of you have read J.R.R. Tolkien's books, and I was reading something that referred to Tolkien, and it said that in his books he uses this literary device called a catastrophe. A catastrophe is an unexpected evil. An unexpected evil. But a catastrophe, you means good, is when something unexpectedly good happens in the midst of evil. That's the good news. That God is doing something in Jesus. In the midst of evil, he's bringing an unexpected good. You see this first in verse 13. He says, return, O Lord, he's praying, return, O Lord, have pity on your servants. And the unexpected good first is that God is a God of pity. That word pity just means mercy. In the midst of evil, God is merciful. And then in verse 14, he prays, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. It's the steadfast love of God that's the unexpected good in the midst of evil. And I want you to see especially here that he doesn't pray... Lord, help me, to, uh, help me to feel at peace in my life because of the consistency of my quiet times. Or, Lord, uh, you've wounded me, but please help me to feel joy because of the discipline which I'm going to have my devotions to you in the morning. Right? The good news is not your devotional life getting back on track or you being more disciplined about your quiet times. But the good news is the steadfast love of God. Where is the steadfast love of God revealed most perfectly and clearly? Think about the most famous verse in the Bible if you live in the South, John 3.16. God so loved the world. How did he love the world? Not by giving us all the stuff that we want or just by fixing everything immediately. His love is revealed in his son, Jesus. His steadfast love. That's what the steadfast love is all about. Jesus, the Son of God. Uh, The Bible says this, In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us. Can the love of God in Jesus Christ really satisfy us? Right, that's, that's what he prays here. Satisfy us with your steadfast love. Uh, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Can the love of God and His Son really satisfy us? And uh, 
I want to convince you that it can. Think about this. How often do you shop on Amazon? How often do you, do you, do you click the button uh, to have it delivered today or in the next four days? Could you buy enough things on Amazon that you would finally go, you know, I think, I really think I've had enough and I don't think I need anything else on Amazon? That would never happen, would it? Never. Why is that? Why is that? It is because God has put a, a, a nuclear power plant of glory in your heart. There's a nuclear power plant. And it only runs on the Son of God. It's the only thing that will power it. But it, it, it craves energy and it wants something to grab a hold of. But God's promise is that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all the Amazon distribution centers. Jesus says that in him, all the fullness of God dwells. And this is what Moses prays. Uh, He wants to dwell in God. He says in verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. When you come to dwell in God, when you come to dwell in his son, Jesus Christ, you dwell in the one who owns everything, who possesses the universe. And you have him. Or think about how we obsess about respect. You long to be respected. If really thin, you know, if anyone ever disrespects you even that much, you fly off the handle and lose your temper. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Because we have this nuclear power plant in our souls can only be powered by the glory of one who's more worthy of respect than any being in the universe. What does Jesus say about himself? Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And that was Jesus' way of saying, you know the eternal God that you worship, Jews? You know the God of the Old Testament who was never born and who will never die? You know the God of the Old Testament who's forever young? He never grows old. He's always fresh and new every morning. That God... That's me, Jesus said. And when you come and find your home in Jesus Christ, in the Son of God, you possess one who's more worthy of respect than any being in the universe. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's the respect that is owed God. And when you dwell in him, he comes to dwell in you. And the being who's owed more respect in the universe, he comes to live in your heart. And that will give you joy. We began by facing the facts of God's wrath and his death. That apart from the gospel, because all people die, death is a picture of what all people deserve. Because of their sin. And this is the question I just want to end with. For a follower of Jesus, is death a picture of God's wrath? For a follower of Jesus, is death, that we're all going to die, is that a picture of God's anger? No, it's not. Um, Jesus said that if you believe in him and keep his word... Uh, Though you die, you'll live forever. 
The Apostle Paul, he loved to think about dying himself, right? He counted it a gain that he was going to die. He wasn't afraid of death at all. The Apostle Paul even said that he wants to be conformed to the death of Jesus. I want to know Jesus' death. I want to experience more and more of the death of Jesus in my life. Because the more I do, the more I'm going to experience his resurrection in my life. For followers of Jesus, death is transformed into a picture of our union with Christ. For followers of Jesus, death is now a picture that I've been united to Jesus. And just as he died, I, I've got to die. Just as he rose from the dead, I'm rising from the dead. And uh, you, you see this in the other passage that's read at funerals. Many times, Psalm 90 is read at funerals. Do you know what the other passage is that's often read alongside Psalm 90 at a funeral? What's well, 1 Corinthians 15? It's usually paired with Psalm 90. And this is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, that a seed that you sow in the ground, it cannot come to life unless it dies. Paul's reflecting on the death and resurrection of Jesus. He says it's like a seed, you sow it in the ground, it can't come back to life and sprout and have new life until it dies. That means that for a Christian... This morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you dwell in Jesus, death is just a necessary step that's going to conform us to the resurrection of Jesus. And this is how Paul ends. First uh, Corinthians 15, it's how I'll end. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The death, uh, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And may God give you the healing of the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ who died and is now risen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do look to you for life and breath and all our being. And we pray that you would help us to realize more and more what we would get if you gave us what we deserved. Help us to see the injustice in our own hearts that we might be humbled. And help us to grow in our confidence that we need not fear death anymore. Because your son has died for us and risen for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.